not going to read the text as of yet, but I'm very excited because I believe God has led me this direction. And it's a, it is teaching at the core. But I'm telling you, God's people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The scripture says to add to your faith virtue. The apostle Peter writes in his second epistle. Add to your faith virtue, which means power. So add to faith power and add to virtue knowledge. You know, and in that knowledge, the knowledge of what? The knowledge of God through Christ. Christ is that revelation of who God is. How many of you have ever seen God at any time with the natural eye? Raise your hand. Now, you have seen his creation, which testifies to the knowledge of God. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's hard for me to fathom looking at the intrinsic you know, design of God's, you know, created order and his world and his galaxies and his universe and for people to say it just all happened by happen chance. I, it's hard for us. We scratch our heads and say, you know, that's faith perhaps at a level that we don't possess because in my faith says there is an author behind it. Come on, somebody. But I've never seen him with the natural eye, but I believe he exists and I know he exists, and I'm going to tell you how I know. I'm going to show you through the Word of God today how you can commune with God at a level and a means and a way that before Jesus died on the cross, it was not possible for mankind to know God this way. But because Jesus' blood was sufficient, Amen. come on, that it satisfied God's demand that it allowed him to do something that he had not been able to do in the 4,000 years prior in human history since man was driven eastward out of the garden called Eden. And that was he could now send his spirit into our hearts and we could commune with the Father. Now, the key is, is I want to learn. I want to know at whatever level. And I know that the knowledge of God is greater than the finite mind can grasp. But whatever God is willing to share with me, that's what I want to grasp hold of. And I want to say, God, whatever you're willing to reveal to me. So I'm going to start this series today by talking about the nature of the reborn spirit. The nature of the reborn spirit. So I want you to pray with me. Ask the Lord to open our understanding today. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the privilege of sharing the word of God. I ask today, as I have prayed many times in this place, that preaching would come easy. The hearts of the people would be receptive to the word of God. The prayers that were made in here a few moments ago about the next few minutes, God, I pray, Lord, that you have heard and your spirit is even now as in the Genesis, you are hovering, God. You are moving in our midst, God, opening our understanding to the knowledge of God. Let us learn today about, Father, the nature of the reborn spirit. It's in Jesus' name and all God's children said, Amen. Before, for just a moment of time, before we get into the nature of the reborn spirit, we're going to go with a little bit more of the familiarity of the Holy Spirit. Now, just a moment, just for clarification, as you, are, if you're a student of Scripture in the King James English Bible, the, there is equally as many references to Holy Ghost as Holy Spirit. But just so you'll know, it's the same Greek word pneuma, and it means breath. So when I reference, I may occasionally say Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit, but it's the same. 
It's the same Spirit of God that we saw in the book of Genesis that I mentioned just a moment ago in my prayer. Genesis tells us that in the creation that the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the deep. God's Spirit has always been moving in the earth. Now, we in our dispensation, the dispensation of grace, that began to manifest itself from the day of Pentecost forward when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the early church, we often associate the workings of the Spirit with this, uh, this dispensation. But anybody that's ever read the Old Testament know that God moved by His Spirit in the Old Covenant. There were prophets that the Spirit of God would come upon, correct? They would prophesy. They would do miracles. They would uh, even heal the sick or they would, uh, you know, they, they would show forth the power of God. Samson, as we've noted before, the Bible says plainly, book of Judges, the Spirit of God began to move him at times in the camp. Great power would be exhibited, you know. He fought against a lion and he fought against large armies. And how? In the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God came upon him for distinct purposes. So the work of the Spirit is not exclu uh, exclusive to the New Testament. It was always present since, as I said th previously, the book of Genesis, when the very beginning the Spirit of God moved. However, the reason why that I wanted to note that there has to be a distinction in how the Spirit and the way and means that the Spirit works in the old and the new dispensations or new covenants is that this right here. Jesus, the Scripture says in John 7. Now, this is in culmination to a feast that was held in Jerusalem in which a bowl of water was brought in to celebrate a part of their feast, and Jesus was near a particular pool. They are just now discovering this pool uh, in Israel, on our trip, we were privileged to stand at the at where this is being dug out of the earth. It was here that when this, there was be a, um, it would be a group of priests that would walk by, having drawn out of this fountain or out of this pool, you know, a bowl of water. That when Jesus said these words in John seven, and when he, when he stood and he cried, last day of the uh, of the feast, and he said, "If you'll believe in me." He said, out of your own belly will flow a river of living water. And then the writer, John, not in red letters, but in black ink, it was his word, said, but this spake he of the Spirit, which had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Now, so you've got to understand, it said the Spirit had not been given, but we read all throughout the Old Testament how God's Spirit moved in the lives of his people. But it, what it means is there has to be a distinction in how God moved in days gone by and how he is moving in the life of, of a believer today. Even Jesus said of his own words, he said, it is expedient for you that I go away. This is in that text of Scripture, John 14, 15, and 16, at least four or five times John direct, or the, Jesus directly spoke about the coming of the Spirit. It says, it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the Comforter will not come, the Comforter being the Holy Spirit. He said, but I will pray the Father, and the, he will send the Spirit in my name. But he said this, when the Comforter is come. So in that context, the Spirit, in what God was expecting or God intended to do by his Spirit in the dispensation of grace in which we live in today, that the Spirit would come in a different manner. He would come in a different way and means, than, and he would accomplish things that he was not accomplishing under the old covenant even jesus himself we know that his own personal ministry was marked by miracles he said i cast out devils by the spirit of god one translation says by the finger of god 
Remember his ministry? He was endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. Endued means to become upon. The Spirit of God came upon him where? And the, the baptism of the Jordan River. John, the apostle, is capturing the words of John the Baptist when he said in that first chapter of the Gospel of St. John where John said, He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom you shall see the Spirit descending and abiding upon and staying upon, it's he that shall baptize with the Holy Ghost and with power. Now concerning the Spirit of God, the Bible says that Jesus came unto his own, John 1 again, and the Bible says, and his own received him not, but to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. God gave us as believers something that distinguishes us even from the work of the Spirit in the old days. Now, let me take you a little bit further real quickly. One of the most unique passages of Scripture to me that has very little um, biblical context or biblical explanation is following Jesus' resurrection. Now, this is not at the tomb where he appears to Mary, but he sends Mary to his disciples and he says, tell them I'll meet them in Galilee. And when he appears to them in Galilee, now each gospel writer records it a little bit different. Now, Luke says that they were afraid at his appearance. And he said, you know, fear not, it is I, handle me and see, for a spirit has not flesh and bone as you see that I have. Do you have anything to eat? So he asked for something to eat. So he would validate that he wasn't a spirit without a tangible body. But the Bible says that in that meeting, John records it, the 21st chapter of John, the Bible says that Jesus breathed on his disciples. Read it on your own. He breathed on his disciples and said, receive ye the Holy Spirit. That's a very unique passage of Scripture because typically when we think about receiving the Spirit, we think about what happened on the day of Pentecost. Because on the day of Pentecost, that's when we call it the birth of the church. That's when the Holy Spirit was sent by God to satisfy Jesus' exhortation. Tarry at Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. I've often contemplated that in my own meditations. And I thought, was this uh, symbolic? John 21, when he breathed on his disciples and said, receive you the Holy Spirit. Was it in anticipation of what would happen in the days ahead, 50 some odd days later, when the Holy Spirit would be? given or was it done to teach us two distinct works of the spirit personally i believe it was done to teach us two distinct works of the spirit what i mean by that is the first is regeneration that's what we're going to talk about today that's from the term salvation when you get saved i'm going to show you as best as i can as much as i can theologically of what happens to a believer when you get saved what takes place what does it mean you're now a new creature in christ jesus old things are passed away what does it mean to be made alive in christ i want you to be aware of this i believe that that jesus breathing on his disciples was the forerunner to that doctrine his disciples as he breathed upon them, they were made regenerate. But I believe it was to show us that there's a, dis, there's a separate work of the Spirit called the baptism in the Holy Spirit where we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Every individual that is born of the Spirit can be baptized in the Spirit. And that's a tremendous doctrine right there, but it belongs to another sermon. So just real quickly, I just want you to see for just, we probably can only suppose the actual purpose of why that's recorded in John chapter number 21. But I just know this that when on the day of pentecost just very carefully on the day of pentecost as they were celebrating in the temple the the celebration for the feast of weeks later the jews began to associate the giving of the law on the day of pentecost because many 
of the Jewish scholars believed that the Mosaic law was given 50 days after Passover when they first came out of Egypt. Now, just and I know that everybody doesn't know all that terminology if you're new to the church, but when Israel came out of Egypt, they celebrated a Passover. That Passover was the, the death of that lamb, the eating of his flesh, the blood applied to the doorpost. The angel passed over the, the children of Israel because they were covered by the blood. I'm telling you, one day that same death angel is going to pass over again and you need to be covered by the blood. Come on, somebody. And so, and, and, and then they celebrated that mighty deliverance, you know, with Passover. And 50, approximately 50 days later, they celebrate, they received the law. The law was given on two tablets of stones. Now, on the day of Pentecost, the priest would go into the holy place with two pieces of bread. Now, it was to represent the first fruits of harvest, no doubt, because that's what Pentecost was. But perhaps it also was representative of the law. That the law was given on two pieces of stone. Now, what's, what's unique about this is as Israel in the natural was celebrating the Mosaic law that was written by the finger of God on stone, somewhere in the temple court on that fateful day, the Holy Spirit comes ushering in, and now God writes what? Not on a tablet of stone, but where does he write today? He writes on the fleshly tablet of our heart. And that's a powerful thing that I'm going to talk to you more about probably next week. But I want to show you the most familiar passage in the context of being born again. And that's in John chapter number 3. And I want you to turn there with me or follow on the screen. And we're going to read this passage. And we're going to look at it just a little bit here today and allow it to direct our thoughts here forward. In Jesus' ministry, now remember, Jesus is the light of the world. Come on, somebody. Amen. Jesus brings clarification. You can't understand God without the knowledge of Christ. You can't understand redemption. You can't understand the fall of man. You can't understand the consummation of mankind if you don't look to Jesus, right? Everything is a mess. Everything is confusion without Jesus. But Jesus came. He's the express image of the Father. In John 14, he walked with his disciples. One of his disciples turned to him and he said, Lord, show me the Father. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you have not seen me? For if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He came to reveal unto us the Father. Amen. And in John 3, he's about to open a doctrine that just, if I, for lack of better words, that blew the mind of this Pharisee, Nicodemus, who was trained in all the teachings of the Mosaic law. There was a man, first verse, of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now, at that time, this is relatively early in the ministry of Jesus. But Jesus' ministry has always been uh, a demonstration of the power of God. From the turning of the water into wine at Cana of Galilee, to the breaking of the bread, to the walking on the Galilean sea, to casting out devils, to unstopping deaf ears, to opening blind eyes, even going into the inner room of the house of Jairus, where his 12-year-old daughter was dead, and Jesus said to her, Talitha, come I, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. He is the resurrection and the life. The power of God's upon him. And he displays the power of God in miracles. Amen? And even Nicodemus and the Pharisees who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah knew that he was distinct. 
knew that these things that are happening can't just happen, you know, by happenstance again. They have, there, there has to be something behind it. That, that there has to be a supernatural work, and they believe that these things were of God. Good choice, amen? Good choice, because they were of God. Jesus said unto him, notice this, verily, verily, I say unto you. So he's not even about to talk about, well, did you, Jesus could have taken this as a moment to promote his ministry. He could have said, man, here's my card. Did you see the miracles that were in our last crusade? Did you see how many people were healed? Did you know that I was at the pool one day or I was, I was actually outside of the pool and I spit in clay and I put it on a blind man's eye and I told him to go wash in the pool and he said, no, he didn't talk anything about any of the miracles. He didn't address any miraculous event but he looked right at Nicodemus a religious leader who was taught in all the Mosaic law and he said this third verse verily verily now verily verily when you see that word in King James English those two words the same word back to back that's a moment like everybody listen if I were to sound a a horn in here today a loudspeaker horn to get your attention verily verily is that moment where Jesus is saying you better shut up and listen Right now, this, I'm about to, what I'm about to tell you is go, uh, you know, who you are and whether or not you enter into God's kingdom is going to hinge or, or, or it's going to hinge upon whether or not you respond to what I'm about to tell you. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, born again, different translations in the Greek, born from above. If you have another translation of the Bible, it may say born by the Spirit. But Jesus said, unless you're born again, unless you're born from above, unless you are born by the Spirit of God, then you cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't know and commune with God at the depth and the way and the means that God intends for you to know. How come is that? I'm going to tell you in just a few moments of time. Nicodemus himself is perplexed. And Nicodemus asks a question. And he says, how can a man be born when he is old? So he's thinking in the natural. He's thinking, wait just a minute. You're telling me I'm probably, he said, you know, perhaps Nicodemus is in his 60s. And he's saying, I'm, I'm in my 60s. How can I go back and find my, my mom's already deceased? How can I re-enter her womb and be born? And Jesus said in the fifth verse, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus brings a clarification. Let's go to the sixth verse. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, so what Jesus, now it's possible when he references water here in this passage of scripture, it's possible that he's referencing water baptism according to the time when if, in order to enter into Judaism, you were water baptized. Or perhaps he's referencing John's baptism because John had stirred the people of Israel unlike anybody had stirred them in hundreds of years. And his ministry was associated with water baptism in order to be clean, in order to be made new, in order to be made whole, perhaps even to be born again in that context. You had to be water baptized. But I believe that the reference is possible that it's associated or it could be both with the birth of a child, the birth of a baby. Every mother in here understands the context the water broke. Perhaps Jesus is referencing to that natural birth right here, the flesh. He said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Everybody that's ever been born of a woman is born of the flesh, right? He said, but if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you can't just be born of the flesh. You've got to be born of the spirit. There's got to be, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, 
Now, it's what we believe that being born of the Spirit is. We believe that it is born again, born from above, born by the Spirit. Other ways to describe it. It's a rebirth. It's a renewal of the Holy Ghost. It is regeneration. John 1 said it is born of God. Let's read that 7th and 8th verse to complete that reading of Scripture. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. Now, this is critical in the King James English. Now, put the 7th verse back up there just so you'll understand it. Now, a lot of people don't use the King James anymore, but I still like it. But I just want you to know there's a reason why these old words, these old English words were used. Because the word thee here is singular in the original. So, he's saying to Nicodemus, I'm speaking to you, Nicodemus. He said, I'm talking right now to you then he said ye but ye is not singular ye is plural so he said you're what he's saying is you're a religious leader you're a ruler amongst the jews i'm talking to you he said but not only am i talking to you i'm talking through you not only do you have to be born again but everybody's got to be born again come on somebody everybody you must be born again john wesley the founder of the methodist church his favorite text of Scripture that he preached from more than any other passage of Scripture in all of his itinerating ministry, preached over 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. John Wesley used this text more than any. And someone asked him one time and said, John, why do you preach from this passage of Scripture that you must be born again? He said, it's because you must be born again. Come on, church family. You must be born again. Now, to further understand this, we've got to understand the nature of man. I love to talk about the nature of man. Did you know that I believe in my heart of hearts, based upon this passage of Scripture, I don't know if I had you posted, it's 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23. If we have it, that's fine. If not, the Apostle Paul prays a prayer. He says, I pray that you may be sanctified wholly unto God in spirit, soul, and body. What that's called is a trichotomy. It is a doctrinal belief that man has been made in the likeness and the image of God. We'll talk about that in just a moment. That we are spirit, soul, and body. That the church evolved into a doctrinal belief for hundreds of years during the dark ages when the Catholic church had its grip on doctrinal belief that man was dichotomous, that man was twofold. Spirit and soul were the same entity, and so therefore there was no distinction. But we are in a, a generation today where God's illuminated our eyes that there's a difference between the soul of a man and the spirit of a man the soul the word in the in the greek is suki from which we get the translation uh, or the uh, our english equivalent psychic in our psychic realm our our mind will and emotions but the word spirit the word spirit is pneuma and it's breath it's the breath of god there's a distinction between our mind will and our emotions and the real man the hidden person of the heart paul called your spirit the inner man Come on, I believe that there's an outer man, the flesh. I believe there's a soul, my mind, will, and emotions. But deep inside of every human being is the ability to commune with God, the ability to house the Holy Spirit called His Spirit. And that's where the life of God can abide. And Jesus is saying that every man's got to be born again. See, when you're born again, you're, everything doesn't change on the outside immediately. Everything doesn't even immediately change in your mind. You have to, as we've said before, you have to unlearn what you have learned. You have to go through a process of discipleship and retraining. But the moment I put my faith in Jesus, come on, just like in the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God, come on, comes ushering in and brings me into God's eternal kingdom. And I'm now made that new creature in Christ Jesus. 
empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's go a little bit further. The need for regeneration. I'll define for you what regeneration means in a few moments. It arises from the fall of man. Now, if mankind, when I mean by man, the word man in the actual Hebrew now, going back to the Old Testament, is Adam in Hebrew. And it means man made from the red clay earth. And so if mankind, Adam, was morally upright in his creation, in the original creation, that means he was sinless in the eyes of God. He was created in the image of God. What does that mean? Does that mean that he looked like God in God's physical attributes? I don't know. I've never seen God. Jesus himself said, no man has ever seen God. I can't tell you if God has two ears, a nose, a mouth. I can't tell you. I presume that there is a silhouette of God somehow, some way. I, I, what I, I, the image that I have of God is through Christ. That's the... I mean, he just got up every morning. He's, in the, he's naked and doesn't even know it. You talk about naked and not ashamed right there. I know we live in the naked and afraid generation. Adam is naked and not afraid, right? He's conscious of God. He's not even conscious of his nudity because he's conscious of God because he could commune with God in the spirit because he had a spirit that's alive to God. His spirit and soul were so closely associated, only the word of God. You cannot take a man when he passes into eternity. And you can't take an MRI his body and distinguish between his soul and his spirit. Only the word of God can do it. But the word of God does do it. And there's an important reason that as we understand this, we're going to learn. He's a living soul. His life force has evolved from the indwelling spirit who joins with his spirit. But when transgression occurred, Remember the transgression in the garden? The transgression, the Bible tells us that Eve was deceived by the subtlety of the serpent. Adam is not deceived. That's why we call his transgression willful transgression. Willful transgression he took from the fruit that was in the hand of his wife and he willfully broke the command of God by the, without the aid of satanic subtle deception upon his mind. And this is what we believe, and this is the hypothesis that I'm going to give you very quickly. Now, I can't exactly prove this to you, but I'm going to just show you my hypothesis at that moment. God had told Adam, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. The Bible tells us that Adam lived over 900 years from the day that he was driven out of the garden. So what took place the day that he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It's our belief that a death of some kind occurred, a spiritual death. What is spiritual death in that moment but separation from the Spirit of God? Now, this is my hypothesis, just real quickly. An example of this would be, I won't take time to take you into it, in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is unique because the prophet Ezekiel sees a vision. He sees a vision of the house of God, the temple at Jerusalem. He's been taken captive. He's in Babylon. But he sees a vision of the condition of the temple before it's destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And then he sees a vision of the rebuilt temple before it's even rebuilt. Before Cyrus ever gives a decree to return to the land of Israel and rebuild it. He sees a vision. The book is divided based upon those two visions. One is before the destruction of the temple. The other is after the destruction of the temple. The reason I'm referencing this to you is because sometimes the temple is a reference. It is a metaphor for the human body. Isn't that right? Isn't that what Paul said? Know ye not. Know ye not that you are the 
Come on now, church family. I know you're in class today, but you need to catch hold of these. Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. You are not your own. You've been bought with the price. The indwelling spirit abides. So the temple, even Jesus himself said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will rebuild it. Jesus is just, uh, the people around him are like, 40 and six years was this temple and building, and how will you see it destroyed and raised again? But the Bible says, the author John says, but this spake he of his body. So it is often that the body is a reference to the temple. So Ezekiel sees the vision. In the 10th and the 11th chapters, he saw the departure because of transgression of the Holy Spirit out of the temple. The glory of God left. Remember where God dwelt in the temple in Jerusalem? Behind the veil in the innermost part of the temple. In the innermost part of the temple. Beyond the outer court. Beyond the inner court. In the innermost part of the temple is where God dwelt. And that to me is a small picture of mankind. Outer court. Flesh. Come on. Inner court. Soul. Mind. Will. And emotions. But inner, innermost person. The real you. The inner man. The spirit of God abides. The Bible says that the glory of God left vacated and the temple was subjective to destruction or death but then later the command was given to rebuild the temple and upon the rebuilding of the temple ezekiel saw another vision the 47th chapter and this is the return of the glory of god this is when the glory of god the spirit of god re-enters the temple and it becomes alive unto god filled with the glory and the presence and the power of god and i think it's just but a little picture of the human being prior to his conversion when he as a descendant of adam is lost in sin and the spirit of god is vacated out of the hearts of mankind and we are nothing more than just a house uh, without the life of god on the inside of us we can know God in the soulless realm, our mind, our will, and emotions, but we're void of the life of God, the breath, the pneuma, the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. But when we put our faith in Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross, then once again, the Spirit of God enters into us, Amen. come on, and makes us whole and makes us new. So think about that with me for just a moment, just for a moment of time. So going back to the Genesis, Adam now is still triune. He's still spirit, soul, and body, but his spirit cannot commune with God any longer because he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. It takes the Holy Spirit joining to your spirit to be able to commune with God. And so man cannot follow God or know God in his spirit. He can know God in his soul. He can follow God. That's how idolatry arose. Because man said, you know what? I wonder what God looks like. He looks like a tree. So somebody would carve out a tree. He looks like an animal. They would carve out a God. They would say, these be, remember even coming in the Exodus, the stumbling block of the golden calves, these be thy gods, the soulish realm. God dwells in the spirit. And so just real quickly, so think for just a moment, that is a, rep, that is a revelation of how that mankind, apart from the Holy Spirit, still looks the same, but he doesn't have communion and fellowship with God. Man, that's good right there, church family. That's why Jesus said, you must. Come on. Nicodemus, I, have, I know the law. I'm a Pharisee. I, co I, I committed my life to understand the scriptures. I'm obeying every 613 commands of the Mosaic law. Jesus said, you must. Be born again. Let's put it in our day, in our time. I attend First Assembly of God. I'm a preacher's kid. You must be born again. You can trace my lineage all the way back to John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. Uh, uh, if I was preaching at the Methodist Church this morning, I could say, you must 
We could go to the Lutheran church and say, you know what? We trace our heritage all the way to Martin Luther when he nailed 95 theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, and he, and he condemned the Catholic church for, for all of their atrocities to, and, and, and he believed in faith. And you say, I can trace my lineage all the way back to that moment. You know what? I would look at the Lutherans and I'd say, you must be born again because without the Spirit, you are like a glove without a hand. So consider for just a moment. I'm going to just give you a few nuggets and then I'm going to close. Y'all real quiet in here. I hope you're quiet because you're learning. Now there's a great revelation to this. And as your eyes become open, you'll understand that you're more than just this carnal appetite. You're more than just the trauma that's in your soul. You're more than just your, 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 you know, your emotions or, or your intellect. But on the inside of you, joined to the power of the Holy Spirit, is a real new you. Come on, somebody. I'm talking about one made in the likeness and the image of God. One empowered by the unction of the Holy Spirit of God. And you're waiting for the day in which there's a complete change to this creation when you're going to be made in His likeness. Come on, somebody. Amen. Now, for just a moment, I love, I'm going to just give you some knowledge. Some of you, this may, I just, this stuff gets all over me. I, I'm just one of those type of people that when I read things like this, I told you before, doctrine is addictive to me. I've never done drugs. Not for, I'm not trying to say, well, you did drugs, so I'm more spiritual. No, I never did drugs because I was a basketball player, an athlete. I didn't have time for that stuff. I've never done drugs. I've never been in, involved in alcohol. I don't know what it's like to be drunk. I don't know what it's like to be high, but I do know how, what it's like to be addicted because I'm addicted to Jesus today. I know what it's like to have a high, but it's not in the natural realm. It's in the supernatural realm because God's spirit came into my spirit and gave me new life. And I have joy unspeakable and full of glory. He is good all the time. And I commune with him even when I don't feel like it. Even when the world around me is traumatized. That's why Paul said, I am persecuted, but not, come on somebody, but not in despair. What he's saying around me is hell, but on the inside of me, as life the outward man perishes but the inner man is made new day by day glory to God hallelujah so think for just a moment just knowledge so Adam and Eve's offspring I'll check the time some of you are getting nervous I even lied to some of you and told you I wouldn't preach that long oh, Lord Jesus it is 12 o'clock already I cannot believe it Lord I can't I'm not even half I hadn't even brought to the bottom of the second page of this so good Wow, I may have to. i got to get people wet here today. I may have to cu cut it in half just for the sake of time. Let me finish this part then. It's probably best that I do because I'm not even, I hadn't even got to the good stuff yet. Isn't that crazy? I'm being honest. I'm talking out loud. I usually try to tell preachers don't talk out loud when you're in the pulpit. It's distracting. Th or think out loud. I mean, don't think out loud. But I'm thinking out loud because... My time has gone away from me. But let's consider Adam and Eve's offspring for just a moment. Think about Adam in the garden. Let's put this together. Now, I didn't mean to end here, but I'm going to have to for the sake of time. So think about this for a moment. Here's Adam and Eve. If the doctrine that I've told you is correct, he was made in the triune nature of God, spirit, soul, and body. He's alive to God. He communes with God. God comes down, communes with him. He fellowships with God the cool of the day. There's relationship. God is spirit. If God came down to commune with him, he communed in the spirit with Adam, right? So he could commune with God. But now because of transgression, sin, because of sin, the Holy Spirit has departed. Man still has a spirit, but he can't commune with God without the spirit in his life. 
He still has a soul, certainly, a mind, will, and emotions. And he typically begins to follow God when he's driven out of the garden by his soul. He's following God. He can learn the word. He can read the word. He can study. He can know God. But without the coming of the... That's why Jesus said, you must be born again, born from above. So consider Adam and Eve for just a moment. So when they leave the garden, they look the same, but they are different, right? They now have the nature of sin. For just a moment, they'll think about their offspring and all other human beings except one. Adam and Eve's nature is the same. They both, think about this room. I'm going to show you this in closing. I'm gonna, I found my place where I'm going to be able to cut it off and just kind of divide this message in two. Adam and Eve know each other physically. Y'all don't, do I need to? Help? Old Spice, lights down low. All right, now y'all know what I'm talking about. They produce offspring. They produce offspring, and their offspring look like them, right? And their offspring carry their same nature. They have offspring that have what we would call a sinful nature, a propensity to sin because of the transgression of the garden. An appetite for sin is created. In childbirth, their offspring possesses the same nature. Listen to this. Flesh which means body with appetites, correct? Soul, mind, will, and emotions. They have a spirit. They have the capacity to commune with God, but they are lifeless in the spirit without the Holy Spirit because Adam can pass his physical seed to Eve, but he can't pass what he doesn't possess. Are y'all hearing me right there now? He, he can't pass... But now I'm going to show you in just a moment, there's a distinction. So just a minute. This also reveals the distinction in the birth of Jesus. This is why Jesus is so important in human history. Because not only is he the son of God, he's the son of man. Not only is he the son of man, he's the son of God. When the angel appeared to Mary, listen to this. Here's what he said. Because Mary said, I don't understand. Same way as Nicodemus, I don't understand. How am I going to have, give birth to a child? I've never had physical contact with another man. I'm betrothed to my husband, you know, but we're not married yet. He's not come and got me. We've not had our moment of consummation of our marriage. How can I have offspring? Here's what the angel Gabriel said to her. The Holy Spirit will come upon thee. The power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Wow. So the Spirit of God hovered over the virginal womb of Mary and brought life into her virginal womb. He gained his flesh from his mother Mary, but he gained his spirit, come on somebody, from Father God. And so he's unlike any man since that first Adam. Come on somebody. He's called the second or the last Adam. So let's go a little bit further. So Jesus, who has gained the full likeness of man through Eve, soul, and body, yet God, who is spirit, through his spirit, breathes conception into Mary's womb. Jesus' spirit had the life of the spirit since conception. But I will talk to you more about that in a later message. So let's close real quickly with this. So you might ask the question then, well, then how come born-again couples who have lights down low, and have the old spice moments, such as the sanctified pastor and his lovely wife, Sherry, to produce those beautiful six offspring. 
how come my children were not born with the born-again spirit? Is that a good question to close on right there? That's good. This is real deep in here today. I'll tell you why. It's because when I got saved, I received the earnest of the spirit. I know what earnest is. You ever put earnest money down on a house? You didn't pay for the whole house. You just put an earnest down, right? Now, in the world to come, I'm going to receive the fullness of the Spirit, right? Right now, I just have the earnest of the Spirit. The earnest of the Spirit calls me to live to God. But here's what I'm not. I'm not a life-giving Spirit. I can pray for you. I can ask God to do good things for you. But I can't breathe on you. And say, receive ye the Holy Ghost. But remember what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians about the resurrection. It said the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. But the second Adam was made a life-giving spirit. Oh, I feel Jesus right there. And so, here's what happens. Me and Sherry could come together and produce offspring. But I could not pass my reborn spirit because I don't have the fullness of the spirit in my life. So how are my children going to be saved? Because when they look to Jesus on the cross and they say, Daddy, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and that he was buried. And then after three days, God raised him from the dead. I believe that Jesus is my Savior at that moment. Whether you're 7 years old, 17 years old, or 70 years old, at that moment, he breathes the life-giving spirit, breathes into you, and you become, come on, somebody, who's my man on the, who am I, who are today? I'm closing today. Daryl, it's fine with me, doesn't matter, because I'm going to give this invitation in closing. The power of God's spirit, the nature of a reborn spirit, you must be. Come on, church family. You must be born again. How? If I were to have got to the end of my sermon today, I was going to answer that question, so I'm going to have to jump to it. I already shared it in closing just real quickly. How can a man, how do I gain access to this wonderful work of the Spirit of God? By putting your faith in what Jesus accomplished at the cross. It's just that simple. You look to what he did, not in the natural eye, but in the spirit. You don't have to see. Let me give you an example. I'm not going to say in any way to embarrass, but our dear brother Ralph is on the back row today. He's blind in the natural eye, but he can see the kingdom of God. Because he's not looking by the natural eye. He's looking by the eye of the spirit. If you want to see God and his kingdom and his glory, then you put your faith in Jesus' death on the cross. You must be born again, born from above, born by the Spirit. That's why Jesus came. He came to give us new life. We'll talk more about it next week. Let's let our heads be bowed, our eyes closed for just a moment of time on a very special Sunday. Father, I just humble myself here today, so moved by the people's response to the good word of God today so encouraged by their desire to learn and to grow. Father God, that's my Christian brothers and sisters. That's those who already believe. They're just inquisitive and they want to know and they want to learn and and they just want to commune with you. 
but there could be somebody under the sound of my voice here today that you have never been born again. You have never received Christ as your Savior. You may have been religious. You may have even joined the church. You may have sat in a pastor's class like I've been teaching, or you may have even been baptized in water, but that's not what he said. He said, you have to be born again. Religion can sometimes give us the other things. Some people think that if they have the other things, they have what's necessary to enter and to see God's kingdom. But let me remind you that Nicodemus was the most of the, he was part of the most religious sect of all of Judaism, the Pharisees. They baptized in water. They kept the law. They did everything. But Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born from above. So today you say, Pastor, how by faith do you believe in Jesus Christ? It's just that simple. It's just that simple. If you're here today, I'm going to pray a closing prayer for, for any person who may today, for the very first time, put their faith in Christ. Put their faith in Christ. I want to pray with you right where you are today. Right where you are. If you're here today and you say, Pastor.